This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Amanda McLaughlin, the CEO of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production company. She's also the longtime co-host of the podcast Spirits. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Danny. Hello. Um, I'm so glad that you're back, and uh, thank you so much for trying to help me remember earlier. I know I've recently listened to an episode of Spirits, but in my mind, it was about like Celtic myths about drowned cities. Um, and so I was like, right, right, right. I listened to the episode you guys did about Lioness and East. Um, and you're like, no, no, you didn't. And I'm like, what did I listen to an episode about? So now at least hopefully I can um, force you to do an episode about it so that I will not be a liar. You should come on and talk about drowned city myths. That sounds super fun. One of my favorite roundups we've ever done is all about uh, mermaid and like water person and merfolk tales from around the world because it happens everywhere where there's hot people living under the ocean that we want, that we're fascinated by and want to get to know. That's fantastic. I I am super, super on board for that. Does it always have to like um, relate back to spirits more broadly or is it just sort of, and there's liquor too? (laughs) <laughs> yes. So our no. So we basically have a cocktail with every um, episode that we talk about, including mocktails. And so every episode is about something around mythology, folklore or urban legends um, from, you know, Mara Wilson was on recently. She grew up in a haunted house and her sister is extremely convinced that they did, in fact, grow up in a haunted house um, all the way to, you know, the ancient myths of Persephone and Hades and the canons that classical folktale uh, horse girls like me grew up with. That feels like actually a really great premise for a horror novel because I feel like it's fairly well known that like siblings often have really differing, sometimes even very contradictory ideas of their childhood. And I feel like, yeah, just like a remembering of a haunted house where one sibling is like, this is how haunted we were. We were the Amityville Horror House. And the other sibling like, what are you talking about? We had the most normal childhood. You're out of your mind. One of my favorite genres of uh, letters that we receive for our call-in shows is I was the haunted child, where people (laughs) realize that they were the creepy child or they were the ghost in the story from their hometown where they did something innocuous and then later realize they've become an urban legend. It is really just a study of like sociology and kids uh, gossiping and wanting desperately to be haunted. I mean, I I love that right now. I want that show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's good stuff. I, I don't know why urban legends are not uh, endlessly iterated on in uh, horror, like, you know, more more boring tropes. Yeah. More more birth order horror, please. Exactly. Tell yeah. me about the uh, the parentification to a uh, creepy child or haunted child trap. Yeah. And also middle children are the best. I think middle children are inherently the spookiest. They're liminal, you know. We're just the best ones. That's all I have to say about that is we're the good <laughs> ones. We're right about things. And we're just the best ones it is possible to be. So see to it uh, that you are one. That's just blanket advice for everyone listening (laughs) to the show right now. I love it. Good good, uh, advice aperitif. I'm glad we're all on board. Um, And I'm wondering if uh, I can interest you in reading our first letter. Absolutely. I love this one because it starts with something that I don't actually think it is, but it just has such a fun gossipy tone that I want more people to begin their letters with this line. (laughs) Absolutely. So the subject is martyr manipulator. And the letter goes, 
I know this is bad. When my boyfriend and I moved in together, we had been together for over a year. I'd seen his apartment many times, and it was always reasonably clean and well-stocked. But once we started living together, he said I should do the cooking and cleaning for both of us, saying I was, quote, better at it. I pointed out he'd always done those things for himself before and accused him of implying that I'd be, quote, better because I'm a woman. We had a few fights about it and even tried making a chore schedule, but he didn't follow it. So I stopped doing any chores for him. I did my own dishes and laundry, but left his alone, cooked meals for myself, used my single-serve coffee maker in the mornings, and didn't offer him any other help. I know this is passive-aggressive, and I regret it now, but at the time, it felt like my only option besides taking care of him. Now, months later, he is not only cooking and cleaning for himself, but sometimes for me. When he does the dishes, he clears the whole sink. When he cooks, it's for both of us, and he picks up his stuff off the floor. He doesn't point it out when he does something like clean the tub, even though I take more baths than he does. He hasn't said anything about any of this either, just started doing what needs to be done. I feel awful. I was petty enough to manipulate him into the cleaning schedule I wanted, and he took it up with no complaint. I'm of course now cleaning equally and started including his messes once he started cleaning mine, but I feel like I was manipulative. I don't know how to talk about this either. What should I say? I mean, I kind of love this one just if only because I very rarely hear from someone who's like, I did something kind of passive aggressive and it worked. Yeah, you got the desired results. And, uh, you know, maybe you could have talked about it directly with better communication, but everyone's okay. Yeah, like, well done. Like, way to, way to live the dream. Like, I did a lot of passive-aggressive shit in my relationships in my 20s. And if it had worked half this well, I would have been sitting on easy street, frankly. Rarely does passive aggression lead to an equitable and, like, pretty loving arrangement of household duties. Right, which, of course, makes me suspicious, like, that he's now playing a long game. Um, and and he's eventually going to, like, this is just to lull you into a false sense of security. And then wham, he's going to do something really passive aggressive to you in return. But ideally, he won't do that. Ideally not. And ideally, you. I don't, I'm not sure even, Danny, if you think any action is necessary here. I think if this is weighing heavily on the letter writer's conscience, uh, she can maybe say, listen, I am carrying around a lot of guilt. This is all great, but I feel horrible and like I mistreated you in some way. Like, let's talk about it. But I don't even know if you have to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine to talk about. I would also just say, like, yeah, this probably will not be, like, the greatest way you ever handled conflict. And so it might be kind of useful to talk about it now that things are more settled and try to figure out in the future if you two have really different um, or even contradictory expectations that you will be able to have that next fight better than you had this one. But I I really don't think you need to put on a hair shirt for this. Um, I don't think this is that bad. Um, Again, like it's not ideal. It's not what I would have necessarily advised you as your first reaction. But it's also like, I think what he asked of you was pretty unreasonable. And you very understandably tried to disagree with him in a conversation first. And then when that didn't work, you were like, well, I'm not going to like dump him tomorrow over this, but I'm just not going to do it. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think that was like, you know, you were kind of making the best of a not great situation. And so I would say maybe at most do a conversation now of like, hey, this seems to be working. You and I are kind of both pitching in now. Uh, you, you may have noticed I now no longer only do my stuff. I'm pretty happy with how things are going. This works better than before when we were fighting over a chore wheel. Do you agree? And presumably he'll say yes, because you have no reason to think he's not enjoying this. And then you can just say like, glad we didn't go with that first idea. And, uh, you know, let's let's try to find better ways of getting to this moment sooner in the future. But you definitely don't have to be like, oh, I was a monster. I only made myself my own coffee. Like, that's not <laughs> wrong. You didn't 
Like to me, you'd have something to apologize for if like you would make your own coffee and then you put the used coffee filter on his pillow or you did your own dishes and then you put his dishes on his, you know, pile of clothes in the corner and like smeared food all over it. Like that would have been shitty and passive aggressive. This was just, I'm doing my own shit. You handle yours. Yeah, you didn't gaslight him into saying like, what, what missing spoons because no one's done dishes in, you know, in four weeks. Like this is, this is really a non-problem. I think that being said, if you want to institute sort of policies to improve your communication, like you were saying going forward, that's a great idea. It's normal to have a household meeting with your significant other or with your live-in partner, you know, every so often to say, uh, hey, how is the house generally? Are there any improvements? Do you want to, you know, replace our couch? Or is there a chore you're currently doing that you hate that I can take over instead? Like that is a a very usual thing to do. And maybe you can have your first annual, you know, the household keeping, household planning meeting and make a space to talk about this kind of stuff in the future. Yeah. But like, let yourself off the hook. Like, yeah. you know, don't throw the guy a fucking parade for like cleaning the sink. Like you live <laughs> together. That's normal. You should both be doing that. Um, he's doing what he should have been doing in the first place. Uh, and instead of doing that at first, he was like being weird and shitty. So this is like better, certainly. Um, and you, you don't have to dump him obviously, but like, don't, don't think that he's like actually doing something incredible and fantastic and that you are therefore an asshole for, uh, not having like waited for him to blossom into this, you know, beautiful next, uh, iteration of who he can be. Like, um, he doesn't point it out when he cleans the tub fine like good that's nice that's not he's not like i don't know knitting you a pulitzer prize from scratch or anything that like yeah. needs to be written home about that's just nice that's really nice yeah when he goes grocery shopping my husband does not go you'll notice i got your oat milk and my mm. almond milk like that is a that is a normal thing that happens and i i think it's really okay to employ the time-tested strategy of a strike where you struck against doing extra cleaning services because, uh, you or know. Like not even a strike, just like he asked you to do something kind of nuts and you declined. Exactly. Um, like a strike at least implies that you're withholding some of your own work, but she was just doing her own work and not doing his. So I, I guess I just want to be careful about that because I'm like, I really understand why she was feeling nervous in the beginning of like, is he just trying to like rope me into doing way more than my fair share of the stuff at home because I'm a woman? And so, you know, you didn't actually go on strike. You you were always looking after yourself. Very true. But yeah, you know, he took it up with no complaint. Well, he he kind of did complain at first because at first he <laughs> said, you should cook and clean for me, which is terrible. Yeah, I just I don't think it's passive aggressive to take care of your own mess in a shared living space. And like you're saying, you know, decline to like go above and beyond. And now you know, doing the thing where you both do a little extra for each other because it's reciprocated is usual. And it's it's not like I think the letter writer is uh, assuming that it is her duty to do these things, either because she's a woman, because he asked or because, you know, she has standards of living that she wants to sort of stick to that are usual, such as clean dishes or, you know, a bathroom that's cleaned periodically. Um, and that's just not unusual. And, and you're you're really OK. Yeah. And like it is not unheard of for people to have like terrible ideas um, <laughs> and still be like an overall decent partner, especially if they let go of the terrible ideas. So again, if you're happy with your boyfriend, if you like him, if that was just like the one dumb idea he had and then he let go of it, great by all means. But I don't think this needs a conversation mo much more than just, hey, things right now are really great. Aren't you glad we didn't do the stuff that we did in the beginning? Are mm -hmm. you also enjoying yourself? And then let it end there. Agreed. Do you have any other thoughts? Do you feel at all like 
I, I don't know. Like, I'm just inclined to be like, yeah, he had like a wacky idea. It's fine. He got better. Do you feel at all like, I don't know, I'm a little worried about a guy who moves in with you and then asks you to cook and clean for him, even if he does later let it go? Uh, it's a good question. I, I'm thinking about when I was a kid, I claimed not to know how to vacuum because it was a chore that I just really hated and didn't want to do. And I just lied and said I didn't know how. And my parents say, we'll teach you. And I said, no, no, I just don't know how. I, I just, I can't vacuum. Sorry. And I did lots of other chores, but but lied about not knowing how to vacuum. <laughs> I love to like, and I couldn't possibly learn. <laughs> no, no, I decline your offer to uh, to take a lesson. I, I simply am constitutionally unavailable to vacuum. Um, and so I think it is it is okay to say, I mean, like, you're better at doing laundry or you're better at grocery shopping like that. That may be true. I, I don't think it like betrays a fundamental sort of bias or inability to compromise um, to to say, you know, I notice your home is very tidy. And as we're putting our homes together, I find all of these things, you know, difficult or challenging. And I want to you know, the letter writer's not telling us that the boyfriend then said, oh, and I'll do all our grocery shopping. You know, I'll be our, our quartermaster of the house and make sure that we have all our supplies, things like that. But, you know, maybe that was implied. Um, I, I don't I think it's a silly idea or an embarrassing thing looking back to have said um, and not like a, a red flag. Yeah. Like if if he is inclined to say anything else in the future that strikes you as like, oh, that seems kind of sexist too. Like maybe bear that in mind. But if that was just like the one aberration, he got over it, he's better now. Great. Great. Fantastic. I'm sure I had some wacky ideas in my 20s. Um, I don't think anything quite on the level of move in with me and then make all my food and pick up after me. (laughs) I guess like at least you admire the chutzpah maybe. Like you miss 100% (laughs) of the shots you don't take. Like maybe she was going to say yes. Yeah, the, the worst I could tell as letter writer is maybe like if this is a thing you see other people modeling in your life, maybe, you know, improve your friends or or challenge it where where you see it, meaning like improve the quality of friends you spend time with, not improve the friends you already have, which is uh, often a, a losing battle. Um, but if, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder I wonder why the letter writer expected her boyfriend to say things like, you know what, it's like clean that bathtub, even though you take, you know, twice as many baths as me. Um, if that's just a sort of self-protective cynicism or if that's a thing that she's seeing modeled um, around her. It strikes me as very like, I don't know, like a sitcom you know, hetero couple humor to do something like that. Yeah. And so just, you know, you don't need to feel bad. You didn't do anything harmful. You were in, like, maybe it wasn't the like most mature way of handling conflict on the planet, but also like, you you had tried having fights with him and conversations with him and he wasn't really listening. And so this was the next step and it worked. So like, well done. Congratulations. I really wish all the times that like in my 20s, my boyfriend had said like, are you mad about something? And I had said no, that it had worked. And he had been <laughs> like, but I think you might be. And so I spent, I stayed up all night thinking about anything I could have possibly done that would have harmed you. And I've made a list that's also a poem. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to like recite it for you now. That would have been great if that had worked, but it didn't. And I'm fine. You figured it out. I figured it out. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I've got there. Uh, any any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, I, I think that's all. And um, if this is the, the biggest conflict you have run into in the first year or two of living together, I think that is a pretty good track record. So I think this is kind of a, this next letter is a slightly similar circumstance where the letter writer feels a lot of guilt over something that I don't think she actually should feel very guilty about, um, possibly zero amount of guilty about. So maybe that's kind of the theme today is just like people feeling guilty when they don't need to be. 
I'm loving or it. Or when they don't need to. So the subject is who fixes the fixer. I'm a 16-year-old trans girl. My mom has been really supportive, which means a lot, especially because I feel most comfortable in jeans and flannel and consider myself to be a butch. I know that can confuse lots of people since I want to be seen as a girl, but I'm really not into makeup and dresses, but my mom has just gotten it without questioning. However, my mom is also the eldest daughter in the family, and she's always the one who mediates between her parents and siblings, making sure that everyone is comfortable and resolving arguments. Her parents and siblings are always in some kind of conflict, but she considers herself close to them. When my grandpa didn't accept my transition, this all changed. She's literally never talked back to them, but has pushed back multiple times against their ignorant comments to me, and even left his house once when he and my aunts got mad and started yelling at her. She's keeping some of it from me, but I know that the extended family is giving her a lot of backlash. I feel like I'm putting her in an impossible situation, where she has to choose between the rest of her family and me. I'm at a loss. I feel great that she stood up for me, but now me being me is isolating her, which feels unfair. The only thing I can think of is to tell her it's okay to let them say ignorant stuff to me, but selfishly, I don't want to. How do I fix this? And is there a way to do so without pretending not to be trans? Uh, that's always a caveat, right? It's like, if I, okay, let's take pretending not to be trans off the table. Right, yeah. What like, options so are available? Know. I'm not going there. Oh, this letter writer, I I just want to hug her and then her mom. Everyone is doing so well here and and you are you are okay and your mom is great and I as the eldest daughter, you know, in all ways, all stereotypes of eldest daughter, that is me. I so feel for both the letter writer and her mom. Yeah, I mean, letter writer, I'm so glad you've got your mom in your corner. I think on some level you probably do know this already, but like it's not that confusing to be butch. People like might choose to be confused because people really like imposing their ideas about gender on other people. But like, there's nothing like wacky or like bananas or crazy about like I'm a I'm a girl and I don't love dresses. Mm-hmm. I'm not super femme. I'm 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 butch. Um, that's like fine, cool, ordinary, easy to understand. I just understood it in like two seconds. It's like a pretty normal, cool thing. So. Uh, I just wanted to offer that as a like, corrective. If a lot of people are doing like, what? <laughs> you you want to be a girl, but you don't wear and wear like 75 pink bows on your head at all time? Well, then how do you expect anyone to, to, to agree with you? It's just like, they are being silly. They are. Um, and you don't have to be silly. Um, I have kind of another take on this one, letter writer, which is that I think perhaps your mom has let a lot of shit slide with her family over the years, maybe not even always consciously, but just kind of always like, I can handle this. It's okay if they do something that bothers me. I can just swallow it and move on. And then something happened to someone else that she loved. And she was no longer just dismissing it because it was only happening to her. And now she's really realizing, I am so goddamn sick of bending over backwards for all of these people who take and take and take and never give. And I am finally like, ready to stand up for myself and someone I love, and I am not going back to before. And she's like, actually not necessarily enjoying this, but really realizing that like, what I considered closeness before was actually me doing whatever they wanted all the time. Mm -hmm. And so this is in fact, like, not necessarily easy, but maybe feels kind of great after years and years of no problem. You got it. How can I help? 
Yeah, I think that the letter writer is correctly identifying that she was a catalyst for change in her mom's behavior. But that's not your fault. It's not something you did wrong. It's not something you chose. It's something that your extended family has chosen to make a point about and the thing that your mom, in my mind correctly, chose to, you know, no longer kind of take lying down. That was my first read to Danny, where I was like, oh, good. Like, I'm so glad that, you know, this this is something that is too, you know, acute or painful to someone else and not painful to herself. Um, I'm sure painful to herself as well. But, you know, this is something that that the mom couldn't let slide anymore. And I think, in fact, if we asked um, letter writer's mom about this, she might say, I'm so glad I, you know, I had the chance to do this or I had the excuse to do this or this is something that, you know, I've chosen to do and I, I feel really proud about my choices and my conduct. I hope she's saying that because I'm I'm proud of her. Yeah. So, yeah, letter writer, I get that, like, conflict is hard and getting yelled at by a bunch of people is not, like, pleasant. But I think maybe part of what you're feeling is, like, if only there weren't this issue of my transition, she could go back to the way things used to be, which is, I'm sure, what she wants. When in fact, I think like, she might not want to go back to that. Like knowing what she knows now, she might feel like, I'm so fucking sick of that. I'm not going back to just saying whatever they want to hear. I would much rather like be an honest conflict than just like fix it, fix it, fix it mode all the time. And like, maybe she's kind of relieved to let go of some of that like eldest daughter caretaker stuff. Also, like, I would encourage you to, like, bring some of this up with her. Like, totally. you can absolutely say, I'm really, like, sad to see that it's been so hard for you and that they've been yelling at you so much. How are you doing? I mean, again, she seems like a pretty reasonable, emotionally healthy and appropriate parent. So I'm not worried that she's going to, like, dump it all out on you and, like, treat you like a therapist. But obviously, if you are worried about that, you don't have to ask her that question. But, like, yeah, just kind of check in and say, like, it means a lot to me to see you defending me. I'm really sorry that they're being so hard on you. You know, how are you doing? But yeah, yeah don't offer anything to fix this. Like, this is something that's been broken for a while. And it's it was only looking not broken before because your mom was willing to, like, take the L for the team and pretend she could handle it. And now she's not willing to do that anymore. So it looks a lot worse, but it's actually kind of just roughly it's actually getting a little better. Everyone's just more aware of it now. Does that make sense? It does. And Danny, I'm glad that this um, this sweet trans teen is listening to the show because I think she is picking up something that I have taken from your work and your podcasts that, mm. you know, a a relationship that is calm and placid based on a lie or based on somebody suffering or based on just like never addressing a lot of underlying things that, you know, really are are festering or, you know, are predicated on somebody else's suffering is not a better, healthier, you know, more sustainable relationship than one where there is, like you're saying, honest conflict and where you say, hey, I know this is how it was before, but I am going to say something that I know we can't come back from, not because I want to break the peace and enjoy being a troublemaker, but because like I really need that for me. And in order to know me better, to have a more honest relationship, this is the thing that we need to address. And that is better, actually. And <laughs> that makes you a stronger person with better relationships in the future. Right. And so you say like her parents and siblings are always in some kind of conflict. So even that, I think, letter writer, you know, on some level, it's not actually that things would go back to being peaceful. It would just be there would be a slightly different focal point for all the conflict. So you couldn't even go back to like a fully peaceful thing because there's no amount of like bending over backwards your mom can do where nobody ever fights. And and again, I, I can appreciate that like in your position, it's easy to like blame yourself and say like, oh, if it weren't for me, she'd be like in this easy relationship with them. But like take seriously the fact that your mom's not just like trying to do you a favor 
but that you actually really matter to her. And it's actually incredibly important that anyone she's close to respects and treats her kid like a human being. And so it's not even like, oh, she's doing you a favor that she'd be relieved to stop doing if you gave her permission. It's like, she no longer wants to make the peace with her dad or her siblings because they have just like violated one of the most important relationships in her life and it has changed the way that she sees them. And that's sad, but it it wouldn't feel good to her to like pretend that never happened and go back to before. Like this has categorically changed how she relates to them and it's necessary and important for her to push back. And hopefully she doesn't have to put up with too much more yelling because she will either like give them an ultimatum or she will stop taking their calls or they will get over it. But, you know, don't don't kid yourself into thinking that like you're causing the problem here. The problem here is that your grandfather and the rest of the extended family are choosing to be unnecessarily and like antagonistically transphobic about a teenage girl. And they could stop anytime they fucking want it mm-hmm. and get along with your mom beautifully. All they would have to do is say, I'm really sorry. I won't say that again. And then they could all go see a movie or talk about books <laughs> or go on a walk or make a casserole together or do whatever peaceful shit they wanted. Yeah, just watch the TV without talking like side by side. There are there are a lot of options. And Letter Writer, I so feel for you wanting to care for your mom in the way that she's caring for you. But I I feel like you're carrying guilt that isn't yours. You know, in your letter, you say things like, you know, me being me is isolating her, which isn't like her family shitty behavior to her about you and to you is causing her to, you know, set boundaries that they are choosing again and again to violate and to isolate themselves. Like they are they are being hit with reasonable repercussions for actions that they can very clearly stop doing anytime they want to. And also, it's not selfish not to give your family permission to say ignorant shit to you. Um, it's it's not your responsibility to fix this. This is stuff that your it's behavior that your extended family is doing that is not your fault. And both of you sound like you have been super, you know, generous, understanding, interested in, you know, teaching them, which shouldn't be your burden, but is, you know, all of that stuff. And in fact, I would say that if you want to say to your mom, not just, um, you know, I so appreciate you and love you, which I, I hope you were saying a lot. But also, mom, I feel really guilty. Like, I I wish I didn't, I feel like I put you in this position and I so love how you've come through for me, but I feel horrible about it. You know, it's it's your mom's job to take care of you um, and to keep you safe. And that includes, you know, reassuring you um, emotionally. And so if you wanted to, I think your mom would really appreciate the chance to reassure you that, you know, she is is happy to do this. And it's it's not a thing you're making her do, but a thing she sees as like her job as your mom. Um, so if you are carrying this around and hearing reassurance from her would mean something, I would consider doing it. Yeah. And just, you know. I think we've said variations on this already, so I'll try to keep this part relatively short. But, you know, you say letter writer, uh, now me being me is isolating her, which feels unfair. And that's not actually what's happening because you being you is is not forcing the rest of the family to behave transphobically. Transphobia is not a natural involuntary reflex mm-hmm. that somebody can have by accident. Um, they are choosing to be transphobic about your transition. And so that's really the thing that I would encourage you to to flip your thinking about. The problem here is not that you're being you and that if you stopped, everyone would be cool and she'd be able to forget all the shit they said. Um, the problem is that they have chosen to be transphobic, which is something people decide to do on purpose um, and because they want to control and hurt other people. 
And it's not something that just like happens like a rainbow or a sunset. Like, oh, there's a trans person. <laughs> ah, a natural upsurge of transphobia has like swelled within me like a, a swarm of birds co- going south for the winter and I have no choice but to release it. Um, you know, your transition doesn't affect them. They don't have to be dicks about it. They're choosing to be. So that's what's causing distance between them. It's not isolating her because, you know, she's got other people. There's the whole rest of the world to go be in. Um, It's their choosing to damage their relationship with her because they would rather be transphobic about you than close with someone they love. And that sucks, but it's not something that you can fix by detransitioning or saying, no, I actually love it when grandpa says hateful shit to me. Like, that's totally cool. Let's go over to his place and play cards. Exactly. I I got an image, Annie, when you were talking of like somebody opening a bag of peanuts on a plane where somebody has disclosed like (laughs) a severe nut allergy. Like that is not you walking into the room being trans and it's an involuntary response. Like you're saying they, you know, they are choosing to do it. And that's why I completely understand and think it's really natural to feel like, God, I must be doing something wrong. God, like I, I must be doing it because I don't know, at least to me in my own brain, it feels a lot safer to think, what did I do wrong here versus why are they choosing to hurt me this way? Uh, it it sucks and it's a betrayal and it it hurts to look at almost more than saying this must have been something in my control because at least that you can choose to stop or you can, you know, turn your guilt inward instead of your anger outward. Um, so I, I completely understand. I don't think you're being, you know, silly by asking these questions, um, even though, you know, to me, it's it's so clear that you're doing absolutely nothing wrong here. Yeah. I'm so glad that your mom's in your corner. I hope you have a lot of other like close friends and hopefully other one or two people in your family who are in your corner as well. But I'm really glad that your mom is um, pushing back. I hope she continues to shield you from this stuff because like you don't need to know the like nitty gritty of all the crazy shit your great aunt is saying right now. Like you're <laughs> 16. You need to be able to be 16 and like relax and live your life without worrying about like all these older relatives who are, you know, being cruel. So good for your mom. Good for you. Talk about it with her as much as you want, just because I think it's good to be on the same page and like help each other out. But please do not feel guilty or responsible for this in any way, because that's just that's just not what's going on here. Absolutely. I hope that the next time you go to a thrift store, you find a bunch of cool vintage flannels in exactly your size. And then when you wear them to school, everyone's like, oh my God, where'd you get that? And you get to go, it's vintage. Sorry. I still remember this incredible flannel shirt. I found it like a Savers in high school that I kept for <laughs> years and years and years and Oh, that was that was a perfect shirt. Thank you. There's that nothing shirt. like it. Um, you uh, how's your family? Any anybody anybody wacky in there? You recently got married. Um, you want to let us know who's your like least favorite relative? Uh, yes. Uh, someone uh, did wear white to our wedding, which was really funny and made me laugh. Uh, one of my aunts got too drunk. That was you know that was kind of the worst that that happened, which was good. But having a wedding is a a really useful kind of social catalyst um, for for setting all kinds of boundaries with family that I hadn't had a chance to do before. Uh, where I said, no, actually, I you know I I do think it's reasonable that you know I make this choice or I do this thing or I ask you to you know come through for me in this way. Um, it you know I did have to have a couple conversations about you do realize this is about me and and Eric right? Uh, like this is you know our day and I'm going to give all the info I can to you and I'm sure you think it's weird we're getting married in a <laughs> you know, farm brewery in the woods, but like that makes us happy. And there is a town five minutes away where you can, you know, have like all the fine dining you want before and afterward. So no, it was, it was fascinating and made me believe in the social ritual of it. Like standing up there, getting married in front of people, you know, who are are witnessing that 
by a rabbi who who knows us well made me think like, ah, yes, the human ritual of marriage and like <laughs> moving from one family to another. Like I I get the symbolism of it all, which uh, which I didn't expect to find so touching, but I really did. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, I'm happy for you. I do wish for just like the sake of my own entertainment that you had a more like comically dysfunctional family. But, um, you know, for you, I am happy. Thank you. You know, all of our parents are divorced. And so we did have to, um, you know, there's like there's eight parents plus partners who we did have to seat strategically in like the different four corners of the tent and, you know, kind of buffer with like our different friends and relatives. Uh, we ended up seating one of my like dad's coworkers who sort of didn't fit into any other table with some of my like overflow cousins, my older cousins who I thought would be fun enough to sort of take care of him. And now they all call him Cousin Sal and they have a group text without me. And they've invited him to uh, to Easter and to Christmas and to the 4th of July and to the next christening. So uh, those unexpected crossovers of, of, of family and friends is something I didn't expect. And one of my uh, husband's aunts, who was estranged for her family for a long time, uh, greeted me by saying, I never met her before. She greeted me and said, another bisexual, finally, I've been waiting 30 years for this. <laughs> and I said... Aunt Tosha, you're my new favorite. So that oh, that was man. that was great. That's either like one of those things where you're like immediately at ease or like, oh, oh yeah. my gosh. No, I'm immediately at ease. We invited her with no expectation because, you know, there was a lot of estrangement coming from Erie, Pennsylvania, you know, in the 70s. Uh, and was she, Erie, she Pennsylvania attended. like an especially fraught place? I don't I don't know Pennsylvania very I well. I mean, it's kind of rust belty and, you know, Midwestern. So that, okay, that's yeah. what I would. That can know, be challenging. It's a real Allentown situation in Billy Joel parlance. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, but uh, but no, I I was immediately at ease, and she sent us a, a homemade card with like confetti in it, and I just I was like, "You're my new favorite." Uh, thank you. This is great. That's beautiful. That's truly beautiful. I was thinking about this earlier today, and I'm curious if you have an answer for this. And I I, I want you to just interpret this as broadly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you remember like how old you were the first time you had like a truly like insane thought or like a deranged thought that you were like maybe aware rather than just like you know three year olds are all like little megalomaniacal uh, (laughs) tyrants like they'll they'll kill you if they could but like yeah yeah I'll stop I'll stop explaining that was my question I want to hear your answer no this this is a great this is a great conversation starter I I definitely or continuer um I definitely remember at like five or six learning the number of books that were published every year I saw it on like a you know a newsweek or a time or something and I was like a you know shy like sort of early reader um, and learning that there were, you know, let's say 100,000 books a year published in the U.S. in the, you know, late 90s mm-hmm. and being like inconsolably sad that I would never get a chance to read every book in existence if there kept being published 100,000 of them every year until I died. And it was a real kind of like facing my mortality, you know, head on. And like, I was really inconsolable, you Mm. know, crying and in grief for days and days. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why isn't everybody else extremely acutely upset about this constantly? Like, there must be something different or wrong about me that everybody is saying, oh, oh, honey, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. It's true. But like, you know, you'll get over it. I'm like, I I don't think I will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think mine was in fourth grade. And I remember that uh, my teacher, Ms. Hart, had like lightly scolded me or reprimanded me for something. And I like walked back to my seat and I remember thinking like, you, you know, I could destroy you in my mind. I can imagine <laughs> universes and like, you're nothing. Like just this full, like, I am God, Alec Baldwin. Um, what's the movie where he delivers that monologue about I am God? From Malice, from Malice, where he's being deposed and he's like, you ask if I have a God complex, let me tell you something. I am God because he's a surgeon. But like I was that level of like 
insane in my head as yeah. an eight-year-old uh, with no surgical skills or really, I couldn't even do first aid. Like I had no, re- <laughs> and again, I think whatever she reprimanded me for was totally reasonable. Like I was disruptive or like didn't do something I was sure. supposed to. Like she was totally right and being appropriate. And then in my head, I was just like, I will call up centurions to kill you and I will watch death sit in your <laughs> mouth like a tongue. That's incredibly lyrical. Mine was just more like, you know, I remember saying it's seven or eight. Like, I don't have anything in common with kids my age. Like, what? They're interested in, in like, pl- playing and I, I just want to read. Like, what am I going to talk about? Or at 10 or 11 saying to a priest, like, well, what about evolution? And the priest and thinking like, aha, I've outsmarted them. I've, I've said the one thing that they have no rejoinder to. And I'm sure that happened to the priest, you know, three times that month. I mean, I I did like playing, to be clear. It wasn't all just (laughs) like I can destroy you in a grain of sand moments up in there. But I was definitely aware, like, that's a lot of anger to be carrying around. And um, I wonder how that's going to go for me, you know? Yeah, it took me a long time to realize that everybody else's uh, interiority and inner universe is is as complex as mine, even if it sounds or looks different. I, yeah. I was, you know, a full teenager by the time that I realized that. That's one that honestly, like, I should just like write that down or like set a calendar reminder and just like yeah. check in every couple of weeks. Like reminder, other people have interiority. You just don't get to see it. <laughs> exactly. Um, in, a, in a recent episode, I was uh, polling people to see if they were familiar with the expression G-Minently and trying to figure out, like, where it fell on the, like, folksy Americana scale. Yeah. Um, is, is it an expression you've ever heard? Have you ever heard someone say G-Minently? Uh, never. I am from Nassau County, Long Island, so about as anti-folksy as you can possibly get in the U.S. Gotcha. Um, so that's a firm no from me. You come from WASPs, I take it? Uh, no, uh, Irish Catholics, um, bricklayers, uh, sure, sure, sure. of the, of the sort of East egg break bricklayers of, of the East egg set. Um, so I was familiar with the idea of a wasp, but my, my town was all Jewish and Catholic growing up, which I thought was the 50, 50 split of the U S demographics, uh, until I got to high school and read a diagram in a textbook and went, that's <laughs> not right. What's a Protestant? Like, uh, this but can't I think be. That does make sense though, because I think, you know, you can be folksy if you're Irish, Irish, but yes. Irish American somehow folksiness drops out of it. Yeah, no, way too practical for that. Uh, far too, far too concentrated on like you know, uh, making a living now and uh, cooking potatoes well, um, mm-hmm. and you know, talking about relatives who drowned in wells. Which <laughs> I don't know about you, but every Irish person I've ever known is like, ah, oh, yeah, my aunt who died in the well. Like it's just it happened apparently all the time in the old country. You know, falling over, it's it's a real danger. So the two people who wrote in about it, the first one just said, "You asked about folksy sayings." I grew up with a mom from Indiana who used criminently. So maybe it's an Indiana, Michigan thing. Interesting. Um, and then the second one was a little bit more in depth, which was re-geminently. I never heard it, but my mother used to say criminently. Born in 1939, she spent the first 30 years of her life in Southwest Michigan among people of Dutch ancestry involved in the Dutch Reformed Church, but I don't recall any other family members using it. Uh, and then they wrote, What does Google have to say? Geminently and criminently and criminy and Jiminy Cricket, too, are all nonsensical euphemisms for Jesus Christ. It's an exclamation. Yeah. My grandpa would say like cripes or Jiminy Cricket, but. Right. Uh, I think cripes and Jiminy Cricket, you can kind of see how they're minced oaths that like do lead back to Jesus Christ. Um, but, uh, you know, it's fun to see like how far off the track they can get because like geminently does not immediately <laughs> strike you as, oh, right, Jesus Christ, someone said a long time ago. And then someone said, whoa, 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 watch your language. 
yeah, I um I spent most of the last year and a half becoming Jewish, which has been very uh, exciting and rewarding. And there is no, there are no folksy sayings. Thank you so much. Um, like like Yiddish has uh, folksy sayings and words, um, which are were were profligate on Long Island, and I grew up, you know, with all of those all those uh, words as the things I thought everybody said about you know tchotchkes and fakakta and and you know all those things. Uh, but my favorite part of Judaism and uh, of studying to become a Jew is that you know in rabbinical arguments, that version of like, okay, well, how, if we have to avoid saying God's name, like, what do we say instead? And like, how off base would a sort of nonsense word have to be in order to not offend God? Like, those would totally be arguments that like centuries worth of rabbis would have with their full, you know, like Mm -hmm. learning and power that have been documented and commented upon for the last thousand years. Uh, That is what Judaism is all about and uh, the way we roll, um, which makes me feel very at home as a person who loves footnotes and scholarly argument. Very cool. Very cool. All right. I think that's enough about folksy sayings. Although if anyone else wants to write in with various folksy uh, family expressions that they might have grown up hearing, uh, I would love to hear about it. So please do keep writing in with that. Um, Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And um, I very much look forward to coming on your show and talking about whatever it is that we've already promised to do. It's it's already left my brain. We're going to do it. It's going to be fantastic. And um, enjoy the next. Oh, no, the sun's already set. Son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> it's going to be dark when we get out of here. All right. Well, that, that them's the breaks. That's living. That's it. Sometimes bad things happen to us. <laughs> but I but hope you have to a complain. good rest of your horrible day that's ruined. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Next time you have a time zone related complaint, feel free to, to get in touch. Oh, I don't think I won't. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It is so, I think, such a like critical social skill to be able to offer up light and universal complaints, but with just the right touch so that people don't actually feel like they're with someone who believes that all life is like just constant misery and inconvenience. Like when someone can complain well, that is like a top tier social attribute. Yeah, it really is. Like my mother-in-law at our wedding, her toast was like, yeah, I, you know, I knew Amanda was a keeper when she beat me in Scrabble the first time uh, we met, which was like both a burn and also like a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a compliment and like a flex of me saying like, oh my God, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have beat you. I, I knew that was a bad call strategically, what would it, you know, but it all worked out. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.